Thank you, Dr. Nielsen. It's a good morning. Good to be with you all again on this wonderful, beautiful Sunday. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'll be reading from verses 13 through 22. And if you're able, please stand in reverence for the reading of God's holy word. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the topic of suffering is a sensitive one. Whether uh, you're talking to a believer or a non-believer, suffering is difficult to talk about. Usually people have many different theories on why people suffer. I remember R.C. Sproul sharing a story about a teen submitting a question about her grandmother's death. And she felt guilty because she thought her grandmother suffered and died because of her sin. R.C. Sproul encouraged her and said, no, that's not how this works. Something along the lines of we live in a fallen world that includes, of course, people getting sick and dying as a result of the fall. And I would even add and go further, who would be alive amongst us and standing if God dealt with us this way? But perhaps you've played that game in your head too. Am I suffering or are other people suffering because of me, because of something that I've done, some certain heinous sin, and that has brought suffering to either me or other people? Is something not going right in my life and I'm suffering because of something I did wrong? My friend in seminary over a decade ago would sometimes lament emotionally, and I, I think I remember this several times in the library, you would have this kind of rehearsed, repeated complaint that what's something along the lines of, God, why is my life like this? I'm sacrificing my life for your service tirelessly, and so why am I facing all these trials and sufferings? And I've been, probably been tempted to think the same way. 
over the years too. Maybe you have also. Those are the moments where life can seem very confusing and pretty dark. Well, much of Peter's letter speaks on suffering, but not in the mind games of a wayward bartering system we try to play with God, such as if I do A, B, or C for you, God, will you protect me from any pain or suffering in this or that way? as if comfort and safety is that ultimate goal of the Christian life. And so we try to, you know, venture into playing that kind of game. That bartering system is pagan in its origins. Thousands of years ago, people, if there was a drought, would say, oh, our specific god of agriculture or of weather and so forth or fertility must be angry So let's go and place some money or some resources there at the altar before this wooden idol so that, and here's a theological word that we use now, that these gods would be propitious, favorable to us again. But that's not what Peter is alluding to in this passage, that erroneous way of thinking. What Peter addresses is the expectation the encouragements of suffering for doing good, which is just another way of saying when you suffer as Christians who live for Christ and his gospel, what are Peter's encouragement for you? And so don't despair. Peter's point of addressing this to his audience is meant for building up the people of God and to prepare them for a godly and correct perspective on what happens if this type of suffering comes to you. What things you need to remember and hold on to? Because again, as soon as I introduce this sermon with the word suffering, probably half of us are saying, oh no, here we go. And I'm going to leave here really depressed. But that's not Peter's point in talking about Christian suffering. It's all about building you up and encouraging you as we go through these together. And so today's passage then will be divided into four main headings, and I'll repeat them as we go along. Number one, suffering for righteousness sake. Number two, sharing about our hope. Number three, sharing with integrity. And then finally, number four, looking to Christ's suffering and victory. Looking to Christ's suffering and victory. This passage overall can be very confusing and and complex, especially as we go uh, later uh, in the text. And, And just as a warning, that there, there's some heavy lifting coming today. But I think the main point of the whole passage deals with the topic again of suffering as Christians for doing good. And I think this is anchored in the statements found there in verses 14 and 17. That if you essentially belong to Christ as exiles in this world, yearning for our true homeland, you might suffer in specific Ways here on earth as you seek to live a God-centered life, that if you boldly hold on to Christ and you pursue good, as this whole chapter exhorts us to, well, then you could very well suffer. Not that you pursue good to get saved and into heaven or to stay saved, but that you do good and pursue a righteous life because you are already saved in Christ alone, by grace alone. But some will suffer for living this way. 
Since this is a difficult passage, especially as we, we get going here, my only advice then is to stay with the main context and that main idea from the passage, the topic and the theme of suffering as Christians here on earth, and the encouragement Peter is trying to bring to these believers. And if you were here last week, Peter is encouraging these exiled Christians, these scattered Christians, to live life in the new way that I repeated often because of their new identity in Christ. New way, a new life equals a new way of living. And if you remember from those previous verses in 8 through 12, to have humility and unity of mind, warm sympathies, a compassionate heart, and brotherly love. These are the marks of a true Christian. To flee former patterns of retaliation and repaying evil for evil, and on the contrary, to actually bless others instead. These are the new patterns. And of course, we're not perfect in these qualities, but they are meant to be pursued as we are anchored in the grace and forgiveness of Christ. Then he quotes from Psalm 34 in verse 11 through 12, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so the Christian life, come what may, is to pursue living in this gospel-driven, transformed way. And so now in verse 13, in today's passage, in our first heading, Suffering for Righteousness' Sake, he will unpack what this all means. Verse 13 again, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? As we've mentioned here all along in our series in 1 Peter, Emperor Nero a ruthless emperor, history tells us. He hasn't yet begun any widespread torture or persecution of Christians here in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, scholars note that Christianity isn't a capital crime at this juncture, nor is it really deemed as something evil. And as long as these quote-unquote small group of Christians weren't revolting and causing disorder, they were usually left alone from the state at this point in Asia Minor. Because of course, one could have said to the rhetorical question, who is there to harm? Many people could say, uh, Nero. Nero can harm me for doing good. But even though this widespread persecution hasn't happened yet at this point, Peter refers to the truth found in Psalm 34 verse six as the way to prepare the readers about suffering. We've meditated and heard that read earlier in the service in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Nero and others 2,000 years ago, or even evildoers today, might harm our flesh and even kill the body. Actually, I was thinking about this in my Greek class 12 years ago, somebody talking about one of his colleagues, a missionary in Turkey, the, the exact region that we're talking about, was beheaded and martyred for being a follower of Jesus Christ. So in some ways, even today, might be worse off than what they were experiencing 2,000 years ago. But, but then or now, even evildoers might possibly harm our flesh, but if you are in Christ, Peter says, no man can harm the eternal soul. And of course, our eternal inheritance kept for us in Jesus Christ in heaven.
But even in this life, if you choose to pursue good and the good for others, you typically won't see people come after you, is his beginning point. But as New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner notes well, there is, quote, no notion of works righteousness involved here. Since God himself has transformed those who live righteously, he's referencing chapter 1, they do what is right as a consequence of God's gracious work in their lives. So pursue good, Peter says. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, meaning again, this pursuit of doing what is good, you will be blessed. People might not bring harm to you as you live for good, but even if that happens, there's that conditional clause that Peter brings up often. Not that every Christian will suffer the same way or go through the same amount of trials and so forth, but even if, remember 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you suffer, if, oh, take heart, you will be blessed. Now, what does it mean to be blessed? In today's vernacular, in today's kind of context, I got a new job. I got into that program or school. I got a raise. You might say, I'm blessed. But blessed in the scriptures can simply mean to experience the favor of God over you. Nothing physical, nothing tangible, but spiritual blessings in Christ over you. This is what Peter was highlighting and after. Even if this is talking about a blessing awaiting for you in heaven, the point is Christ is with you. Psalm 34, God is for you and favors you since you are now born again to a living hope, building on that statement from chapter 1. And then verse 14 continues, so have no fear of them, nor be troubled to these people who bring malice, persecution, and want you to suffer. If people bring about persecution to you as a child of God and you suffer for righteousness' sake, Oh, don't live in fear because, again, what harm can they do to the body? They will never touch the soul and your eternal standing before Christ. This should not trouble you, Christian, however hard that might seem to digest. In that have no fear of them, Paul is talking about a carnal fear, a carnal fear that he knew very well in that episode where he started to sink in the Sea of Galilee. Oh, he knows about this Greek word phobos. But phobos can be defined in positive and negative ways based on context. And here it's the negative kind. Don't be afraid of what persecutors and evildoers can do. Rather, trust in God. Again, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And of course, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's number one. Suffering for righteousness' sake brings God's blessing. Now to our second heading, sharing about our hope. Look at verse 15 if you can. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
Now, many of you guys know this. Verse 15 is probably the most referenced and quoted verse in regards to the discipline we know as apologetics. That's just the Greek word used here for defense. But as noted, scholar Karen Jobes notes that Peter didn't intend this to be some professional, systematized defense, but rather, really at the basic level, to be able to humbly articulate the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And of course, as chapter 1 reminds us, this hope is future-focused, not a a temporal hope for a comfortable, easy, and suffering-free life, but the living hope about what is to come in our true homeland, a faith-driven anticipation of what is stored and kept for us, that eternal, imperishable inheritance. Peter is saying, I hope this brings encouragement to you, those that are suffering, that you don't have to be a world-renowned scholar to prepare your defense of the reason of the hope that is in you while you suffer. Simply speak to why you have hope. Years ago, uh, my sister who works at a a PR firm in Washington, D.C., this is probably over 12 years ago, went through a very troubling season, the dark night of the soul. And her coworkers knew something was up. Yet they saw a person at peace and not losing control, yet something was wrong and troubling. So one of her non-Christian coworkers sat in her office and said, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going through something really difficult right now. And I'm pretty sure that I'm going through something really painful and difficult right now. But why is my life out of control? Why am I in despair? And you're not, and you even have, seem to have this kind of peace, a type of groundedness. And my sister, who was at that time going through a season of spiritual renewal and growth, and by the ordinary means of grace, growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, without needing to go to seminary, without serving as an officer or leader of the church, or having led a Bible study, just simply started to share her hope in Jesus Christ. Friends, apologetics as a discipline can be such a useful spiritual tool for Christians, but Peter is speaking to a first level, basic articulation of the gospel and the hope that we have, and so can you. This goes back to our previous passage, about our Christian conduct before a watching world. Where we were saying, live in a way that invites people to ask, why? Why do you live this way? And how can I get what you have? Let let me buy you coffee. There's, There's something different about you and the way you perceive your worldview, the way you handle ups and downs. Why? Peter is saying the world is watching in your conduct before the state, in your employment, in the household. People are watching. So prepare an answer when they ask you why. Verse 15, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter warns them to not make an articulation of the gospel with the sword in hand like Peter did maybe 30 decades before he wrote this, but to do it with a gentle spirit. And now hear the word respect, do it with respect, which is actually the same Greek word I mentioned before, phobos. That means fear 
or can be translated as a, quote, profound feeling of respect or reverence of something or someone. And I learned a lot here, I agree with scholars that, that draw the conclusion that we can live this way before others out of our rightful attitude or a true fear of the Lord first, vertically, before this seeps out horizontally. So that was number two, sharing our hope. But it bleeds into heading number three, sharing with integrity. Look at verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Theologians note that the reference to having a good conscience has to deal with living in integrity. So make a proper defense, yes, in gentleness and respect, but also with integrity. As one author writes, one cannot explain the hope we have in Christ while living in ways that contradict that hope. People can see right through that if you're just talking the talk and not walking the walk. Peter is speaking against mere lip service, essentially, of speaking to the hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not talking about being sinless, but there is a disconnect between what you are talking about and actually how you're walking. Do you actually have and are you actually walking in this living hope? The author continues, the humble and respectful testimony of believing Christians defeats the malicious talk of those who would malign the faith. That's a good summation of what we see there in verse 16. Now, I told you verse 17 was one of those anchor verses to remind us of the overall thrust of the passage. For it says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I was really helped by one note on this verse, essentially Better to suffer now, Christians scattered across Asia Minor, it's better to suffer now for doing good than to suffer on that day of judgment and for all eternity for doing evil. And note that word, if, again. God's will is for you to live his way, doing good, pursuing good, and sometimes his will is for you to suffer as you do good. Not God likes to see you squeal in suffering and that's his will for you. That's backwards. Rather, his will is for, for you is to walk the righteous path by the power of his grace and sometimes you might suffer for doing so. I thought that was such a helpful distinction when I was reading on this topic. So essentially, no need to pray for suffering to come your way, but pray that you live for the gospel. You know, I, I always kind of get concerned when people say, Lord, would you bring this persecution to me? Would you bring me through this real tense season of suffering? You don't need to pray that way. Rather pray, God, help me to obey. Help me to live in the new life and in the new way. And if it is your will, help me to suffer well. That's all you have to pray. So that's number three, sharing with integrity. Now, number four, looking to Christ's suffering and victory. Look at verse 18 for now. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the gospel in one verse. Amen. One of the classic proof texts of what we call penal substitutionary atonement. 
in order for our sins to be atoned for, meaning essentially a sacrifice or payment needed to be made to bring us in right standing before God. Christ was the only one who could come as a substitute, where it says in that verse, the righteous for the unrighteous, and pay once for all for our sins, that's the term for penal or penalty, by dying on the cross and shedding his precious blood for our sake. This is the gospel in one verse. Years ago when I was preaching through the whole book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, it was striking that in Mark 8, 9, and 10, consecutive chapters, three times, Jesus kept alluding to his inner circle, his disciples, that there would be a time where he would come, and this is the reason why he came to earth, to suffer and die for sinners. And Peter, decades before this letter was written, wanted nothing to do with that, if you remember. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus suffering and dying. He wanted to establish a kingdom right there and now and rise up and be at the right hand to Jesus as he ruled. But oh, how his eyes now see and how he believes with fullness of heart and faith that the only way to be brought to God, reconciled to God, is to believe in verse 18, all from grace alone, all through faith alone as a gift from God. And so Peter says, in order to understand and persevere in your own suffering for doing good, simply look to Christ over and over. Look to Christ. Look to the chief example of suffering for the sake of righteousness. A righteousness not of course, uh, not of our own of course, but he suffered so his perfect righteousness could be then credited to us through faith. And anyone tempted to think is suffering for good works-based righteousness? You might be tempted to ask that. Need only look again to verse 18. Now here we go, verse 19 to 20, in which he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. I could have easily just skipped this, but we're going to try to do some heavy lifting here. We come to one of the most confusing verses in all the New Testament. I read that Martin Luther once said that this was one of the most puzzling passages he, has ever, he had ever come across. And that at that point, he was like, I still don't really know <laughs> what this is about. And then Westminster says, well, move over, Martin. We're here. We're going to tackle this in the next 10 minutes. And over the centuries, though, these two verses, of course, were interpreted in a variety of fashions. Millard Erickson the Reformed scholar said that there are 180 differing exegetical possibilities in terms of parsing the text here in these verses. And if you have time to go over all 180 possibilities, by all means, send me an email. I'll read it over coffee or something, and I'll get back to you. But I'm not going to go over 180 differing explanations. But of course, these verses have been used over the century to describe I think falsely, of course, as a proof text for purgatory. Or the possibility of post-mortem conversion after people, you have a loved one, a relative that died. Is there a way that Christ can still preach to them and, be, and they be saved? 
Both teachings we Reformed Protestants completely deny. But I think the text will speak for itself and shows how people have tried to read into the text what they want the text to say. So for instance, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed. What does that mean? Some interpret this as Christ descending into hell in the time frame between his death and resurrection. But nowhere in the Greek or even in the English translation here allude to Christ descending into hell. It simply says he went or translated going to. No other information is given to where this is located and actually at what point Jesus actually went. And some of you might even be thinking of the Apostles' Creed, that misunderstood statement, and Christ descended into hell. Well, the Westminster Larger Confession, our confession, question number 50, states that the phrase descended into hell basically meant that Christ was buried and was held under the power of death until the third day. Other Reformed teachers, uh, I think especially John Calvin, speak to Christ descending into hell. That meant a separation from God, the Father, as Christ had to incur the wrath that we deserved on his cross. But in regards to the wording of the text, again, nowhere can we draw a definite conclusion as to actually where and when Christ was doing this act of proclaiming. And more on that in a minute. But let's go on in verse 19. What is meant by proclaimed to the spirits? Well, as one theologian notes, the Greek word here typically means to make an official announcement or public declaration, not to, quote, evangelize. So the English Standard Version, I think, has it right here in, in, in translating it proclaimed. The NIV has preached, which again uses a totally different Greek word usually for preached. And I think when you translate it as preached, that invites the troubling interpretation of preaching to people after they have died. But the word study is helpful in our interpretation, or at least our attempt to a correct interpretation here. And then about spirits, scholars note that in the New Testament, when spirits mentioned in the plural is written about, they almost always refer to evil spirits or fallen angels and not to humans. And so how does this all fit? Well, Peter then speaks to those in rebellion, if you, if you keep reading there, to those in rebellion or helping tempt the rebellion in the pre-flood era of Noah. Some think that this verse meant that the pre-incarnate Christ preached to rebellious people through the lips of Noah in his time. But Daniel Doriani from Covenant Seminary helpfully notes that, quote, in Peter's time, the most common Jewish understanding of Genesis 6 held that fallen angels played a great role in corrupting humans in Noah's generation. So I think I agree with modern conservative scholars that, that interpret spirits in verse 19 there as those fallen angels, those evil spirits that were particularly at work in evil during the Genesis 6 narrative. And these theologians agree that this was probably Christ proclaiming, not preaching, proclaiming victory over these spirits in prison, this prison alluding to some specific realm that these spirits were being confined to, not preaching to them, but proclaiming victory. And that interpretation means that Peter is speaking about Jesus' resurrected status as the vindicated and victorious risen and ascended Savior, which he alludes to later. So I think we can say Peter is talking about not just the time between his death and resurrection, but at the right hand of God the Father. He has already proclaimed to these fallen angels 
and to all the enemies of God, oh, this victory won in Jesus Christ. Now, in context then, because remember, don't get lost in, you know, what does this mean? And if all the other theologians across the centuries can't get this right, well, can I try to get it right and perfectly right? Don't forget the main context. Peter's, what Peter's trying to do here in the context of the elect's status as sufferers for righteousness' sake and our encouragement and our salvation, just as Noah and his family of faith were saved, we too are saved, despite whatever you might go through. So that's why the final two verses, 21 through 22, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. As alluded to before, Christ, the victorious, vindicated Savior of his people, resurrected and sitting at now at the right hand of God, has dominion and power over all things, where one day every knee shall bow before the risen Lord, including these fallen angels. As I was helped by my time in seminary, every knee will bow whether they want to <laughs> in their heart or not. Peter is not saying the actual mode of baptism with water saves you, but what the sign signifies saves you. And of course, clarifying this by showing you the actual water cleansing of removing of dirt is not what saves, but what is this spiritually pointing to? It's pointing to our union in Christ in his death and resurrection that is signed in the sacrament of baptism. As one theologian, I think R.C. Sproul notes, the phrase baptism now saves you shows the closeness of the relationship between the sign and the reality it signifies. Noah's physical salvation through the waters of the flood prefigured the waters of baptism and the salvation they signify. Baptism symbolizes judgment on sin in the death of Christ and then also renewal of life, end quote. And so again, how is this all tied to the overall theme? Christian, if God's will for you is to suffer for doing what is right, while you guard and share this gospel good news, living after the righteous path and in humility and with brotherly love, if you suffer while you turn the other cheek and bless those that curse you, then remember, as again our fourth heading says, oh, look to Christ's suffering and victory. May that bring you peace. Look to and remember our uh, the, the wonderful gospel truth of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ and his victory over death, sin, and our enemy, the devil. Look to him for all the strength and guidance and comfort you as sojourners and exiles in this world. You always can't, you always have to tie it back to the overall themes, the main lines, not just get lost in one or two verses, but in the context of those scattered across this whole large region who might be tempted to despair and losing hope. Peter is not saying, oh, you just better get ready to suffer, but he's saying, keep doing good. And if you suffer, look to Christ. You know, suffering back then might tangibly be 
really different to today's context, but the principle is the same, that when we suffer, oh, we are truly spiritually blessed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, we could never stand without his finished work. And so we come with empty hands to receive the blessing of this living hope, all through faith and, of course, by your grace alone. When we are tempted to despair in our suffering for doing good, help us to remember our identity in him and the victory won for us in his death and resurrection. Father, as we approach Good Friday and Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday in a couple of weeks, Lord, would you prepare Westminster for a reviving of our hearts and minds as we remember well all this for the sake of your glory and for your renown. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.